Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to a new episode of Talking France. Over the next 30 minutes, we will bring you up to date on the most important stories from France this week. We'll also talk about cows and pheasants. We will find out more about recent long queues at France's border control and whether this is a sign of what's in store for travellers this summer. And after pensions reform, there is a new political crisis brewing for Emmanuel Macron and his government. This time, it's over sensitive immigration reforms, which include imposing French language tests for certain residence permits. We'll find out more about exactly what's happening. We will bring you new details of the opening ceremony for the Paris Olympics next year, which promises to be extremely extravagant, unprecedented, indeed the most audacious in history. Can France pull it off? And can you get tickets without having to spend hundreds, if not thousands, of euros? And we'll hear about the ambitious steps taken by some French cities to cut out cars, but also why French governments are keen to avoid annoying motorists in rural France. I'm Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined by the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, and our French politics expert, John Litchfield. Hello, Emma. Emma, you've been wanging on about scenes in La Rochelle this weekend for the last few days. Just tell us what's been happening over there in the Western city. Yeah, I spent the weekend being very jealous that I wasn't in La Rochelle because it looked really fun. Basically, what happened was that their rugby team won the Champions Cup, which is the European Cup. They're now officially the best rugby team in the whole of Europe. And the city went bonkers to celebrate this. They had a massive celebration in the Vieuxport area on the Sunday when the team came back, showed off the trophy. It's estimated there were 35,000 people there, which is literally half the town. The population of La Rochelle is 70,000. Um, and it looked, yeah, it looked absolutely amazing. I'm so jealous I wasn't there. La Rochelle, I believe the name comes from the word Little Rock in French, actually. Interesting tidbit. It's a beautiful town on the west coast of France, opposite Ile de Ray, I believe. Tell us something I don't know about La Rochelle, Emma. Yeah, it, it's a really fun town. And it's also, um, it's a real place. If you're British and you studied French in the 1980s and 90s, you probably used a series of textbooks called Tricolore. I remember them well. You remember them well? Yeah, yeah, of course, La Rochelle. They were all set in La Rochelle. And some British people actually think that this is like a made-up town that they created for the books, but it is real. And it's also pretty cool. Unlike the La Rochelle in the books, which, as I remember it, was just full of te teenagers asking each other the way to the youth hostel and talking about their favourite school subjects. I saw someone tweet recently actually saying, I've never set foot in La Rochelle, but I think I could tell you the way to the near the tourist information office, the station and the left luggage office or whatever, referring to the Tricolore books. Yeah, absolutely. And there seemed, As I remember it, there seemed to be a lot of discussion about like your favourite school subjects and how to clean the blackboard, which I don't think yeah. I've ever used in, no. um, yeah. in France. Um, but the real town is actually pretty cool. It has one of France's biggest music festivals, what they call Francofolie, uh, which is a huge concert that they have in the historic harbour area. Um, it's got a really lively nightlife. It's got a thriving tourist industry. It's also, as I mentioned, got a very successful rugby team. And a lot of years, it also has cliff diving, which is a completely 
mad sport. The people who do this are nuts. They jump off the historic harbour walls. It's about 27 metres high down into the sea. It's highly dangerous, but very extreme. It's an incredible event. It's actually not being held in La Rochelle this year. It's coming to Paris. So we get to see this kind of madness in the capital. We'll find out more about that later, actually. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Emma. Now, moving on to a subject that will interest travellers who are heading to France in the coming weeks and indeed over summer. Emma, there's been images of long queues at Charles de Gaulle Airport this week. Um, it's not something that's new. We've seen them before. What's happening at the borders in France? Are, you know, are people going to expect long queues here? Yeah, so this was something that happened on Monday morning. It only affected Terminal 1 of Charles de Gaulle. The queues were about 60 minutes for arrivals and departures, and it was really only in the morning. So this wasn't particularly dramatic, but... It's got people talking because obviously we're a long way off peak travel season at Mm. the moment and it's kind of worrying that it should be happening at all in a a non-peak period, which is kind of why we're talking about it. Mm. Aéroport de Paris, which run the, the two airports in Paris... They blamed a shortage of French border control agents and the passengers seemed to back that up as well. I saw a few people who were tweeting pictures of just two border guards on duty dealing with all of the arrivals, which is why there were such long queues. The border agents, they're under the control of the French police aux frontiers and they admit that since last year they have been short of staff across the board, not just at Charles de Gaulle. They've had about 300 unfilled vacancies at the end of last year. Um, They are at the moment having a pretty major recruitment drive to be ready both for this summer, for the peak tourist season, and maybe more importantly for next year for the Paris Olympics when they're estimating that about 10 million visitors are expected at the Games. Mm, That really will be peak period. Now, we remember as well last summer there were huge problems at the UK port of Dover for holidaymakers trying to get into France Huge tailbacks, often people waiting over a day there. Was this a similar problem to do with French border control? Sort of. The problems at Dover, which were long waits to get through passport control by people leaving the UK, mostly by ferry, they're more to do with infrastructure and Brexit. So since Brexit, passport controls to enter France are stricter because the UK is no longer in the EU and therefore they take longer. And the infrastructure of the port of Dover itself means that it's quite hard to expand the passport control area. There were reported problems at the very start of the UK summer holidays last year when several French border guards uh, were late for work. They said there were problems on the transport, but anyway, they were late. But since then, there have been kind of repeated bottlenecks at peak times, which weren't to do with French border control. So it just kind of seems that when there's a high volume of traffic, like the start of UK school holidays, there are problems at Dover. Mm, France is the most visited country in the world, we should remember. There'll be huge amounts of Travellers coming to France this summer. Do we have an outlook for the summer? Any predictions of kind of trouble at the borders? Well, for Charles de Gaulle Airport, it really depends on whether the border police can recruit all of the new staff that they need. For Dover, it kind of seems like these problems will be happening now. Mm. Um, and of course, it all depends on whether there are strikes or not. Can't rule those out in in France ever, but the summer tends to be a peak time for airport strikes in particular. Indeed. We'll keep an eye on that as we head towards the summer. Thank you, Emma. Right, let's move on, although sticking slightly to the subject of borders. In a few weeks' time, on July the 31st, in fact, France will get a little bit bigger, tiny bit bigger, and Spain will get a tiny bit smaller. Emma, what am I talking about here? <laughs> you are talking, I'm confusing people. You are. Um, you're talking about an island. It's called Ile de Feza, Pheasant Island. It's sometimes also called Ile de la Conférence, and it also has a name in Spanish and two names in the Basque language, which I'm just not even going to attempt to pronounce, but they basically all mean Pheasant Island. Right. So this is a tiny little island. It's 200 metres long and 40 metres wide. 
It's in the middle of a river, which forms part of the northern part of the Franco-Spanish border. So we're talking about the Basque country here, yep. close to San Sebastian. Okay. And the reason that anyone ever talks about this tiny island, which is uninhabited, by the way, is its unique nationality status, which is what you just alluded to. Mm. So from February the 1st to July 31st each year, the island is part of Spain. Then on August the 1st, it becomes French and it stays there, French, for the next six months. And this weird special status comes from the Treaty of Bayonne from 1856, which formalises this kind of hybrid status of the island. And it says that Pheasant Island, to which so many historical memories common to the two nations are attached, will belong undivided to France and Spain. Before that, it was been used as a kind of a handover point between French and Spanish royals who were often in conflict or even outright war whenever they needed any kind of neutral territory. So French kings met their Spanish brides there and vice versa. And there was even a hostage swap between the French king Francois Premier, who was being held hostage by the Spanish, and his sons. And so it kind of became this sort of useful neutral territory. And then eventually its weird status was formalised in, uh, in this treaty. It's technically administered by the naval commanders of San Sebastian during its Spanish phase and Bayonne during its French phase. But in reality, the day-to-day -day admin is just done by the mayors of the two nearest towns. And there's no one living there. There's no, no, no kind of no people live kind of dual nationality or have the special status. It's just a little tiny island. Yes, completely uninhabited. Like we would not be talking about it if it didn't have this weird status. Very strange indeed, yeah. But um, a small island is not the only thing that will change hands between France and Spain this summer because every year on the 13th of July in a small enclave in the Pyrenees in the Ernas Pass to be precise, an ancient ceremony takes place in which a village in France gives three cows to its neighbours in Spain. It's called the Ceremony of the Treaty of the Three Cows, and some historians think it's actually the oldest treaty in the world still in force. Emma, this special ceremony has taken place since at least 1375 and probably a lot longer. I can see you're intrigued. Okay. Dare I ask why they do this? You can. I'm not sure I can answer it. No one really knows why it happens, actually. The treaty that formalised it was signed in 1375, but it stated that the cow swap was already happening by that point, and it seems to be the resolution of some kind of conflict. But there are basically various theories on exactly what this was. The you know For the ceremony, the mayors of the two nearest towns dress in traditional garments, and the French mayor brings along his best three cows. And I quite like the fact that vets are brought in to kind of carry out medical checks or fitness tests on these animals to make sure they're not duds, you know, they're not handing over duds. When you say fitness tests, they're not like a bleep test where they make the cows no, run no, up no. and down. No, I think they've just got to do a few squats. And stuff oh, like right. that, and they, and they have an eye test, you know, with the letters on the wall. Normally, and yeah. yeah, just a normal <laughs> medical test. And I think for me, the sad thing is that you know, in this changing world where money takes over, the cows aren't actually handed over anymore. Just a financial reward for the cost of the cow, and the cows just go home. It's a bit sad. But the cows still get a little trip to the border. They still get a day out up, and a medical so test. Yeah. Nice. yeah, interesting. And look, the cow swapping is on the UNESCO World Heritage List of Cultural Assets. And so is another Pyrenees tradition, Emma, that you're going to tell me about. Yes, this is one that I do know about. It's a French festival. It's called the Fête de l'Ours, uh, which is the, the bear festival. And it takes place in a little village on the border, another one. Uh, and this is called Prat de Molo la Preste. And it's really weird. It involves a man dressing up as a bear and chasing humans, That's not weird. Do it particularly all the time. young women around the village. Do you do that all the time? Okay. 
Um, so the man dressed up as the bear, he chases the humans, especially the young women. At the end of the festival, the humans turn around, they catch the man in the bear costume, they skin him. Skin, or, skin him? Yeah, it just they just take off oh, the bear take costume. costume. He doesn't right. actually get skinned. Yeah. So that he symbolically becomes human again. It happens every February. It's a pretty big deal. 10,000 people turned up to the last festival. Wow. And apparently it used to happen all along the Franco-Spanish border, but these days it only happens in three towns. This one, Prado de la Preste, and two towns in Andorra. And again, it got UNESCO World Heritage status last year. It went on to the UNESCO Intangible Heritage status list. Uh, and can anyone apply to be the man who dresses up as a bear? Uh, I think so, yeah. I think you need to be local, so you think, have, oh, you'd have to move are, Several first. listeners are Googling this right now. Fête de l'ours. Fête de l'ours. In Prats de la Molo de la Preste, I think it's pronounced. Um, Emma, you mentioned Andorra. I'm intrigued by Andorra. Can you just remind us what Andorra is again? Uh, Andorra is a microstate, uh, like Monaco, Vatican City, places like that. It's on the, the Franco-Spanish border up in the yeah, up in the mountains. Um, it is actually a country. It has its own national football team. I don't know if they're any good. No, the rubbish. Right. Well, yeah, it is a very small place. Mm. So, um, but although it's an independent country, it's nominally at least ruled by two co-princes, and these co-princes are always the president of France and the bishop of Guel in Spain, which means that technically Emmanuel Macron is a prince, or at least until 2027 when his presidential term ends. The country itself, it, it's really small. It's a popular ski destination because it's in the Pyrenees. It has some really nice spas as well. I've been to one. It was great. But it's mainly known because it's got the lowest rate of sales tax in Europe, so that French and Spanish families who live close by often just drive there to stock up on goods like alcohol and tobacco. The main town, Andorra la Vella, is basically like a giant duty-free lounge. Mm. And the border towns are full of just sort of giant warehouses and people go to stock up on booze and cigarettes, but also just like household items that are quite expensive in France. So by the side of the road, you'll just see huge stacks of random things like washing powder mm. or paint. It's a very strange place, Interesting. But, but pretty. Worth a visit. Absolutely, yeah. Right, moving on, although sticking in some form to the subject of borders. Emma, the French government has been promising to put forward key immigration reforms, well, for months now. You'll remind us shortly what's in this bill, but it's still not become before Parliament, and now it's blown up into a huge row. Not exactly what President Macron wanted after the pensions reform unrest. And given we're supposed to be in these 100 days of appeasement that he announced, Emma, what's going on here? This government is in choppy waters again, is it? Uh, yeah, it seems like it. So this immigration bill, it was first announced last year, back in November, but it's been delayed several times since then. In May... Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne gave a speech outlining the priorities of the French government after this bitterly contested pension reform was passed, what you just referred to, the 100 days of appeasement. And she said then that the bill would be debated in the autumn, although since then reports have kind of said maybe it will be in July. But it seems that behind the scenes, what has happened is that Gerard Damanin, the interior minister, He's been instructed to build a parliamentary consensus on the bill because what the government doesn't want to do is introduce another bill which might be rejected. And the government, as we remember, does not have an outright majority in parliament. So he's been trying to find some allies for his immigration bill. His natural ally for this would have been the centre-right Les Républicains party, which not only has enough MPs to pass this bill if it teams up with Macron's centrist bloc, but he's also kind of the natural ally, I think, for matters pertaining to toughening up on immigration laws. However, on Sunday, the Les Républicains leader, Eric Ciotti, and two of his colleagues gave an interview to the Journal du Dimanche newspaper in which he slams the government's proposed bill as ineffective and laid out his own demands, which are radical, extremely radical. Yeah, I saw one of the Les Républicains leader use the words reprendre le contrôle or take back control, which obviously 
has echoes of the pro-Brexit campaign. What have they actually suggested, Emma? Well, what they want to do is they want to change the French constitution and they want to depart from EU laws on migration, which would, if the government actually did it, would sort of be a kind of Frexit by stealth. So it's quite a big deal. They want to expel all undocumented migrants. They want to make it a criminal offence to be in France without the correct paperwork, which would also apply to asylum seekers, so kind of limit the right to asylum, and also cutting health care provision for non-French citizens. The proposals have been kind of described as basically a copy and paste job from Marine Le Pen's far right Rassemblement National Party. So with the proviso that there is probably a bit of political showboating going on here, these are not proposals that the government is likely to be able to support. So it does seem that at present the bill is stalled. Mm. Now talking about the bill, uh, these reforms were presented back in November and the PM has admitted that putting it through Parliament could divide the country again. But is there anything actually radical in this bill? It's not the most radical bill, no. Probably the thing that's of most interest to our listeners is the idea of having to pass a French language test to get a carte de séjour residency permit. This would be a first because at present there are no formal language requirements for residency in France. It's only if you want to become a French citizen that you need to pass a language exam. So any foreigner in France under this bill who is applying for the long-term carte de séjour pluriannuel will have to prove that they have, and I quote, mastered a minimum level of French language. And that would be the first time that formal language tests have been required for residency cards. Now, this doesn't affect new arrivals or anyone who's on the short-term residency cards, the one-year card or the five-year card. Uh, It doesn't affect Brits in France who are covered by the withdrawal agreement, since they already have the right to long-term residency. Big sigh of relief there. (laughs) Yeah, too right. At present, the Office Francais de l'Immigration et de l'Integration, the OFII, they can order people who don't have much French to attend a language class but you don't have to actually pass an exam. You just have to go to the class if they think that your French is is not good enough. The bill itself, it doesn't specify the level required for the test, but we asked the Interior Ministry and they told us that it would be A1 on the DELF scale, which is kind of beginner French. It's defined as... The most basic level at which language is used called the discovery stage. At this stage, the learner can interact in a simple way, speak about themselves or their immediate environment. Mm, Okay, I mean, that's definitely the standout kind of element of the bill that's interesting for us. But what about the bill in general? I mean, is there anything radical like planning to deport migrants to Rwanda, for example, like the UK are trying to do? Uh, No, there's there's no Rwanda plan. The language bit, obviously, it's important to people like us, but it's really the thing that's got the least attention from the French press and politicians. Also in the bill uh, is a proposal to make it easier to expel migrants who don't respect the values of the French Republic. It's kind of obviously you can already expel people who commit crimes, but they're kind of trying to make it easier to to do that. There's a crackdown on people smugglers. Um, There's a streamlining of the process for asylum seekers so that asylum applications would be processed faster uh, and people whose application fail could therefore be expelled from the country faster. There's a special residency card for health workers. And there's also temporary residency cards for people who are working in under pressure industries. And it's this last one that's really proved a red line for the Les Républicains party. The government insists that it's not an amnesty for undocumented workers, but it is really, in effect. The idea is that anyone who is already in France and working illegally in an industry which is suffering from a skills shortage, uh, for example, construction or hospitality, 
they could benefit from a special residency card allowing them to regularise their status and stay in France. And like you said, the right wing are very opposed to this, but businesses have been favourable? Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, there are quite a lot of people in France who work on the black, you know, they call them sans papier. And there are particular industries, uh, like I said, particularly construction and hospitality mm. that really do rely quite heavily on undocumented workers. We've kind of seen the sort of some of the Olympics projects. They did a bit of an expose that some of the people working there were undocumented, but that's honestly pretty common in construction and these industries actually do need these people. Thanks, Emma. This is a good time to bring in John Litchfield, our French politics expert who joins us, as usual, on the line from Normandy. I asked John why this immigration bill has caused such a row and whether there was any chance Macron could get it through Parliament. Well, the two are connected in a way. I mean, I think I count seven attempts to to push through this migration law that Macron and his uh, interior minister, Gérald Darmanin, have made in the last year. It's been sort of, you know, stop-go for a while now. I think it's one of the test cases he's decided on just to prove that he's not a lame duck, that he can still get fairly difficult pieces of legislation through through Parliament, despite the uh, sullen mood of the country and Parliament and the opposition about pension reform. He seems to have taken the view that he, the centre-right couldn't vote against a new immigration law. And the, the weekend, they blew that out of the water. The three principal leaders of, of the Les Républicains, the centre-right, set out a sort of draft law, which has not actually been published yet in, in the, the Sunday paper, the Journal de Dimanche, which essentially took a very British conservative or Front National Le Pen view of immigration and blew any chance of the rather moderate Macron proposals being agreed by them out of the water. I think the Republicans are essentially trying to sort of build a platform on which they can, as you know, they're a much reduced and much divided party, uh, which used to be the, the ruling party par excellence of France. And this is a way that they think of trying to a Le Pen maybe of trying to get back into power or at least having a sort of strong electoral platform in the European elections next year and then looking forward to the presidential election in 2027. So a lot of it is just politics, you know, and it is, is, are there real issues in migration? Yes, there are. And, you know, what the Macron law was trying to do was two things at once in a very Macronish way, if you like. It had sort of hard cop and soft cop elements. It was saying, at the moment, we're not able to, to expel asylum seekers very easily. Therefore, we're going to increase the number of courts and we're going to toughen up the the laws we have for, for getting rid of people who aren't have no right to be here. At the same time, we're going to allow job permits on a limited basis for people who don't have a right to be here but aren't regarded as any great threat in any way, uh, give them a chance to sort of at least contribute to the French economy. And also only in those sectors like restaurants and building sites where there is a short, huge shortage of labour at the moment. So that's supported by the left up to a point, and it's supported by the business community, but it's hated by the right because it gives a suggestion of people being allowed to remain, although they've uh, entered the country illegally. So that was one of the things that the, the, the Republican completely rejected in, in their proposals at the weekend. So I don't see any chance of this law going through now, uh, frankly. Well, I, I mean, if it doesn't go through, John, as you predict, what, what happens next? Is it is it just dropped? Is Macron kind of consigned to be a lame duck as he fears? Well, I think he, he's a lame duck on some things and not on others. He will get through his defence spending. I think he will get through the green industry law, other things which are relatively consensual or not so controversial he can still make legislation on. I think he wanted to prove to himself and to the country that he could do things uh, which are more difficult. And I think migration law was probably, a, as Elizabeth Bourne warned him, I think it's not the one to choose because it's, you know, would would raise all the hackles on the right and, and on the left and it was not a good moment to do it. So I think it's a mistake on his part to force it through. The only possibility of getting it through is if he and the interior ministers harden it up and make it rather more seminal than not the worst ends of the Republican proposals, make it harder, drop the the idea of having a limited number of work permits for illegal 
migrants or failed asylum seekers, which would, I think, cause enormous split, not just with the left, but with, within his own centrist coalition, So uh, Macron's own centrist coalition. So that would be another dangerous route for him to go. And John, just finally, this is a, a kind of political crisis for Macron. That doesn't mean that this will necessarily kind of spill out onto the streets. We're not likely to see kind of big protests and marches, strikes regarding this bill like we saw for the pensions reform. No, I, I don't. I don't see that at this stage. I don't think it's reached that point yet. There might be. I think there there have been one or two little protests around the country already from both sides, from from hard right and from the left. No, I think if we're going to see more protests, it'll be on our old friend pension reform again, because there is still this attempt in Parliament to so-called reverse the Macron reform on eighth of June, which is a kind of symbolic attempt. It doesn't can't actually succeed. The, Protest movement which seems to be fading quite badly to be rebuilt and, and to become quite active again. That may happen for a while. I don't have a feeling that the country is in a mood for yet another big, big go around on pension reform. Now, the subject of the car is a sensitive one in France and views often change depending on where you live in rural France or in cities. We'll speak to John Litchfield to get a view on why it's such a political hot potato in rural France. But Emma, let's focus on cities. In recent years, cities across France have been kind of cracking down and introducing kind of anti-car measures. We have a new one in Lyon. Tell us about it. Yep. So city of Lyon, southeast France, they announced this week that they're going to introduce a sliding scale of car parking charges based on vehicle weight. So if you're a resident of Lyon, your monthly parking permit will now cost between €15 and €45, depending on the weight of your vehicle, as opposed to a flat fee of €20 as it is at the moment. Visitors will also be charged on a sliding scale, depending on the registration number that they enter into the ticket machine. So big vehicles like SUVs will be more expensive than small ones. And SUVs already have uh, a tax surcharge when you buy them. But Lyon is the first place in France to introduce any kind of extra penalties for people who own the large and therefore heavily polluting vehicles like SUVs. And officials in Grenoble and Paris have both said that they're thinking along the same lines and they're going to be watching quite closely how things go in Lyon. Interesting. Now, like I said, in recent years, cities in France have been taking measures to essentially limit car use, crack down on pollution. Bordeaux, for example, has barred traffic from around... 50 hectares of the city centre and plans to extend the pedestrianised area in total to 100 hectares in the coming years. Authorities there are currently examining areas that could be made car free. And Paris perhaps has the most ambitious new plan to cut down on cars in the city centre. We should remember Paris has already introduced several landmark measures in recent years aimed at getting cars out of the city centre. In 2013, part of the left bank of the Seine went car free. Then in 2017, the right bank was handed over to pedestrians, cyclists, joggers, or flaneur. Do you know what a flaneur is, Emma? Yes, somebody wandering along, taking wandering, in there. strolling along, Taking yeah. the view, thinking great thoughts. Yeah, you'll see a lot of people down on the banks of the Seine wandering along. Um, several shopping streets in Paris are already pedestrianised on certain days, and by 2030, even the famous Champs-Élysées Avenue will be reclaimed from the throng of cars and turned into an extraordinary garden for pedestrians. Since the pandemic as well, huge stretches of roads have been turned into cycle lanes, such as the famous Rue de Rivoli. But the next big project is to ban most cars from the historic heart of the city. In other words, the central arrondissements, that's one to four, including the two islands in the middle of the Seine. Now, this was meant to happen in 2022, but it's been pushed back to 2024. The plan is aimed at banning through traffic. So not all cars will be banned, delivery drivers, taxis, residents, etc. They'll still be allowed to drive in the so-called called Calm Zone, but authorities estimate it will take 100,000 cars off the road in Paris, although mayors of the surrounding arrondissements uh, are obviously against this. They're cheesed off because they reckon that will just push traffic into their areas. Emma, 
One thing Paris has in its favour when it comes to kind of cracking down on car use and perhaps even Lyon as well, it's got a decent public transport system that offers an alternative for getting around. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you can only really persuade people to give up your cars if you provide an efficient and reasonably priced public transport system. Most French cities do do that, but some have gone further and are providing totally free public transport. Probably the two most radical are Dunkirk and Calais, both in the uh, in the north of the country, on the north coast. Since 2018, public transport has been totally free in Dunkirk, both for residents and for visitors, while in Calais, bus transport is free for everyone. These are the most far-reaching of the schemes in France, but a lot of other towns are providing at least some free transport for, for certain groups. So in Montpellier, down in the southeast, bus and tram transport is free at the weekend, but you do need proof of residency. You need to download a free weekend travel pass and you need proof of residency for that, so it's not for tourists. In Nantes and Nancy, public transport is also entirely free at the weekends to locals and visitors alike. And other cities are kind of targeting certain groups. So here in Paris, if you live in either Paris or the greatest, greater Paris, area. Under 18s benefit from a free travel pass, while in Lyon, residents who are on low incomes can also get a free travel pass. Interesting. Did you know, I think the Ile-de-France region, actually, uh, I discovered this last year when I was commuting in from Fontainebleau, where tickets used to cost €9 Euros for a single ticket, and they just cut it down to 5 basically, to encourage, get people on the trains and out of cars driving into Paris. I was like, this is fantastic. Suddenly it becomes, you know, it's not as much as a cost to actually commute in on the train. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially for people in the outer suburbs. I mean, if you're within Paris, you you know, walking, cycling is a, is an option. Is the an metro option, is yeah. there, but for for people from the outer suburbs, I think they're looking to get more of them commuting in because a lot of the cars in Paris are from people who live just outside Paris rather than in the city centre itself. Exactly. Yeah, it's time to bring in John Litchfield, who knows a thing or two about cars. In rural France, John, anti-car measures are fairly well accepted in France's big cities, but it's a different matter in rural France. Why is the car such a political hot potato for those who live in the countryside and smaller towns? Well, <laughs> here in my small village in Normandy, where the nearest shop is, uh, I think, four miles away, and that's quite common across rural France, and a lot of my neighbours here drive into Caen, which is 35 kilometres to the north, to work. Well, there are three or four buses a day in each direction, um, so it's not it's sort of possible to get to Caen uh, by public transport, but not really. The only railway line that was here closed, I think, in 1985. So, you know, you can't really live in rural France without a car. It's a different proposition altogether to in towns, where I think a lot of young people live in towns, so it's, you know, reason to have a car or to drive even in some cases. Um, and, you you know, public transport is pretty good in most big French cities or even medium-sized cities. So the, the whole argument about cars is quite different in rural France. And, it, you know, politically also, the, the voting pattern is different in rural France. It tends to be, depending on the part of the country, more, more to the right, and therefore politicians have to take a, a different view to the towns, which have a big left and often, you know, ecological green component in their vote now as well. And we saw recently that the government has kind of reduced or stopped adding, taking points from people's licences when they are caught, you know, just slightly over the speed limit. Is that a kind of gesture, a vote-winning gesture that, you know, the government has made to voters in rural France? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of, a little bit connected to, to the, the sort of hundred measures which Elizabeth Bourne, the Prime Minister, has declared before the summer to try and change the 
subject of national conversation from pension reform and prove that the country can still do things which people like, you know. And so they've been looking for small things like that across all ministries, which, you know, uh, appeal to people in a very sort of basic way that affects their lives. And and this question of the points that should take them from people's licenses if they exceed the speed limit has been a big bone of contention in rural France together with the fines themselves. But um, since they started to enforce the speeding laws 20, 30 years ago, which they weren't particularly enforced before. And so it's very easy, you know. I mean, you know, I think I've said before, there's a, there's a part of the main road in the valley near me where the speed limit changes about seven times in, in, in two and a half miles, between 30, 50, 110, 80, it keeps changing. And so it's quite easy, even if you know roads in rural France, to fall into the trap if there's a, a radar but there, which you don't know, which they sometimes are, and, and to lose points quite quickly. And so this is a way, I think, of, of trying to reduce the temperature of anger in rural France, which was seen in the Gilets Jaunes protests, which were partly to do with speed limits uh, two or three years ago, but also, yes, in the wake of the pension reform to try and at least sort of throw some sort of, you know, sweetness into the atmosphere. Right, Emma, it's time for our reader question. Now, there's a big press conference this week in Paris with the government, Paris authorities, Olympics authorities talking about this mammoth opening ceremony for the 2024 Olympics Games. Uh, What's actually going to happen and can I get tickets? Yeah, so we've known for a while that the opening ceremony for the Paris Olympics is going to be different to normal Olympic opening ceremonies. It won't be in a stadium. It will be instead held along the River Seine, going right through the centre of the city and passing some of the most famous landmarks. But this week at that press conference, organisers unveiled a bit more detail about the ceremony itself and also the free tickets that will be available to watch it. Now, it just sounds absolutely bonkers to me. Most audacious opening ceremony ever planned, it's been referred to. Just tell us more about it. Yeah, um, to me, I've got to say, it sounds absolutely amazing. I may be biased here, but I think London is the opening ceremony to beat. I thought that was fantastic, but the Paris one might be even better. So we know that the ceremony itself is going to take place along a six kilometre stretch of the river. It starts at the Pont d'Austerlis next to the Jardin des Plantes, and it ends up uh, next to the Eiffel Tower. So east to west, going along the Seine. Exactly. Uh, It will involve roughly 10,000 athletes who will be carried along the river in 91 boats. So they're all getting on a bateau mouche tour. (laughs) Uh, Each of the national delegations gets their own boat. Right. uh, So each country gets a a boat, uh, plus 50 extra boats for security. We know it'll last about three and a half hours. And we know that once it gets to the Eiffel Tower, there will be some kind of artistic and musical show. And it's at the Eiffel Tower on the Trocadero that the sort of traditional parts of the ceremony will happen, like the lighting of the Olympic flame and the official declaring open of the Games. But the organisers are staying pretty tight-lipped about the exact details of the actual ceremony, so that obviously you get a surprise when you watch it. But we do know that they're going to be having practice runs on the Seine from July this year. So if you're loitering by the river, you might get a bit of a sneak peek. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're going to spot 91 boats going down the Seine, aren't you? You'd think, yeah. Huge. I mean, they're all, I mean, you do normally see a huge amount of boats on the Seine, tour, tour boats, et cetera. Now, Emma, you mentioned free tickets. Surely not. Uh, Surely this Olympics isn't offering free tickets. Yes, yes, it really is. So the opening ceremony tickets, uh, they went on sale at the start of May as part of the um, second phase of tickets, and they were snapped up almost immediately. I was lucky enough to get a sales 
slot on the website on day two of the sale. And even then, the only ones that were available were the ones for €1,600 for a single ticket. All of the cheaper ones had been sold out There's been reports of 2,700 euro tickets still being available, but I mean... Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of cheaper ones, in fairness, but they just went incredibly quickly. Um, That led to a lot of complaining, so organisers have now announced that 100,000 free tickets will also be available. So the paid-for tickets are in seated areas along the quay, along the the riverbank. Posh seats. The posh seats, yep. But, of course, you also get quite a good view of the river from the upper embankment where the road goes along and from the bridges. So what organisers have now said is that there will be space for 100,000 people along the embankments. This will be standing room and it will be free. But for security reasons, people will have to register in advance for tickets. What we don't know is how you register for those tickets. Obviously, we'll update the the local website as soon as we do know, but I imagine that they will be a pretty hot ticket to get a completely free ticket for this amazing event. Does sound like it, yeah. Like you say, more details are set to be revealed about how to get these free tickets, and we'll bring you all up to date as soon as we have those details. Thanks, Emma. Now, sticking with the theme of sport at the end of each podcast, regular listeners will know we like to recommend a few things, uh, life hacks or events to go to. And sport, well, you're really in for a feast if you're a sporting fan in France over the next few weeks. We've got the Paris diving that, Emma, you mentioned on the 18th of June, the Red Bull Cliff Diving Championships in the Seine, where people dive off some kind of board, I believe, 27 metres above the Seine and dive in. Is the Seine deep enough? Uh, I guess we'll find out. I mean, it took place last year, so hopefully they know what they're doing. Yeah, presumably they also like sweep out all of the abandoned bikes and stuff from yeah, the same before leaves. people start diving. Let's hope anyway. I think so, yeah. For motor racing fans, the famous Le Mans 24-hour race, it's actually the 100-year anniversary this year of the first one, the endurance race. Uh, motor race takes place on the 10th of 11th of June. That's just south of Le Mans, uh, a city between Nantes and Paris in kind of central France. And then there's obviously the big one, the Tour de France, the 2023 Tour de France. It's the 110th edition. It will start in Bilbao, Spain on July the 1st and end at the Champs-Élysées on the 23rd of July. And of course, the big event taking place in Paris. I think it's actually started, or the qualifying matches have, but it starts for real at the weekend, is the French Open, or otherwise known in France as Roland Garros. Emma, who's Roland Garros? Uh Great question. I looked this up this week because, like you say, we refer to it as the French Open, but in France it's always just referred to as Roland Garros. Um, So I looked up to see who this guy was. And the most interesting thing to me was that he doesn't seem to have had much interest in tennis. He's not a championship winner. No, no, no. During his life, uh, he played football, he played rugby and he was a keen cyclist. But there's no evidence that he played tennis or even particularly enjoyed watching tennis. How the hell is this stadium complex named after him then? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He was a pilot, in fact. Uh, He was the first person to fly across the Mediterranean in 1913, uh, which made him very famous in Paris. When the First World War broke out, he joined up and he was shot down and killed in 1918. Ten years later, the venue we now know was Roland Garros uh, was opening up and the Stade Francais Multisports Club, which owned it at that time, was run by a man called Émile Lazur, who had been a close friend of Garros. And it was him who apparently really pushed to have the stadium named after his friend. Roland Garros, he was a reasonably well-known name in France at that point. He was a war hero and I said he'd become famous as a a pilot. But yes, certainly not well-known for tennis at all. Brilliant. Strange, but uh, I'm glad you've cleared that up for me. Uh, You had one last piece of advice for listeners and me, actually. I've forgotten to do this. What is it? Uh, Yeah, I feel like this is maybe like quite a boring one after your fun summer of sport, but it's quite essential if you live in France, uh, is tax deadlines. Do not forget about them. Just remind me again. The deadline has already passed for people who declare on paper. All right. 
For people who declare online, it depends where you live. So May 25th for people who live in Departements 1 to 19 and also people who live outside of France. June 1st for people who live in Departements 20 to 54. And then June 8th for the rest of us, including people who live in Paris. Right. So that's you. Okay, um, and France's overseas Departements. If for any reason you're not able to complete the declaration in time, you have until June 29th to get in touch with the tax office and request what they call a remise gracieuse, which is basically an extension. Otherwise, you will be liable to late fees and fines. And finally, if you own property in France, this year you also have to complete a one-off property tax declaration and the deadline for that is June 30th. Really important info. Get it done, listeners. Thank you, Emma. Thanks for tuning in to all our listeners. That brings us to the end of another episode of Talking France. Don't forget, if you can take a minute to give us a review on whatever platform it is you listen to the podcast or even recommend it to friends and family. And thanks to all our members who make this podcast possible. We'll be back with more next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.